Good morning. We're continuing our walk through the book of Romans. Yes, we're still at the beginning. Chapter 1, book of Romans. Does everybody know what an obituary is? Yeah, everybody knows what an obituary is. It's basically, it's a story of somebody's life after they've passed, right? I just wanted to share with you this particular one as it kind of applies, well, it actually does apply, to exactly what Romans is talking about this morning. The obituary reads this way. His parents were leaders in the community. He received the best education money could buy. He married a beautiful wife, had two wonderful kids. He avoided damp weather. He stayed in during flu weather. He brushed his teeth teeth twice daily with a famous toothpaste. His primary care physician examined him twice a year. He was referred to excellent specialists. He had an allergy-free ventilation system to filter the air. He drank eight glasses of water, ate fresh vegetables, and got plenty of fiber every day. He bought the best vitamins and nourishment supplements that are on the market. His job was low stress, and he was very successful. He walked three miles a day, five days a week. He rested eight hours a night. His funeral will be Sunday. He leaves behind a beautiful wife, two smart children, a good insurance agent, a capable doctor and four super specialists, a personal trainer and a health spa, many trophies of various sizes, many awards for community service. But he forgot God. He never had time for church. He thought he had plenty of time. Mark 8 says, for whatever, for what shall a man profit if he should gain the whole world and yet lose his soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? There is a great exchange in Scripture. The great exchange is the exchange that's made for us in Christ Jesus. Our sin, our failure has been exchanged for his holiness and his perfection. The cross of Christ is the crossroad of that exchange. And there's no better exchange for any person to make or partake of. There is another exchange, however, in Scripture, and it's also great, but not in the same way at all. The great exchange of our sin for His righteousness is great in terms of its amazing goodness that we get to experience as we exchange our sin for His righteousness, and that's what makes it great. It is great in quality. It is great in scope. The other exchange, well, that's only great in scope. By that, I mean that its scope is really so far-reaching that it really affects mankind at pretty much every level. It's the exchange that we make when we decide in any way, shape, or form to worship the creation rather than the creator. It is the exchange of our passage in Romans this morning. So I want you to turn with me to Romans chapter 1, verse 18. Romans chapter 1, verse 18. Eventually this morning, I'm going to read it out of two different uh, translations, but we're going to start with the NIV, because that's that's probably the most common one that we have uh, here in the room this morning. This is what it says in Romans chapter 1, starting in verse 18. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and the wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness, since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that men are without excuse. 
For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools, and get this, exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity, the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. Interesting passage, huh? I'm going to stop and pray, and and then we're going to jump into this thing. It's probably going to take a a little while to get through Romans 1 because it is so detailed in how God approaches, how he explains how mankind got off track. But let's pray because some of this is a challenge for us this morning as well. Heavenly Father, we just come before you wanting to, to get everything out of your word that you designed for us. Father, I ask that you would tap into our brains, tap into our hearts this morning through your Holy Spirit, and apply these truths to our lives, and let them challenge us, Father, challenge us to move closer and closer to you. In Jesus' name, amen. First thing I want to share with you, the first thing that I see in this passage is that there is some good news here. It's the good news about wrath. Now, that doesn't really sound like good news, does it? It sounds like an oxymoron. You got to be kidding me. There's good news about wrath? There is, actually. But let's talk about what wrath is first. What is wrath? In particular, the wrath that we see in the Bible. The word wrath is actually used 197 times in the Bible most of which are in the Old Testament. 166 of those times is in the Old Testament, leaving about 31 for the New Testament. Jesus actually only used this word once, and he wasn't even talking about the wrath of God. He was talking about the wrath of man. In the the Greek, wrath is orke, and it actually means properly to desire, but it's a twisted desire. It's a desire for violent passion. It's a desire for punishment. Anger, indignation, vengeance, wrath, they all come from that same root word of orge. But there actually is good news about this thing called wrath. In verse 18 here, it says, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. The implication here is that the wrath of God is directed at those who are not believers. They're the non-believers and they're not just non-believers, they're non-believers who are actually against the truth of God. They're people who have decided that they know better than God. They know better than the Word of God, and that God isn't as good as what the Word says He is. And so, they try to suppress the truth about the goodness of God. So, He's not talking about believers at this point. That's part of the good news. Romans 5, 9 says, much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. The idea here being, folks, if you're covered by the blood of Christ, there is no wrath of God against you. Believers don't have that issue. He goes on in verse 10, for if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, shall we be saved 
by his life. 2 Corinthians 5 says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Righteousness and wrath don't even go together in that sense. Wrath is not for us. Now, I know many Christians still talk about the wrath of God upon everyone who sins. Believers are not. You get that concept from a, a lot of different radio preachers and, and the like that, you know, everybody's going to stand before God and he's going to just roll out your life in front of everyone and all of your mistakes, all of your sins, all of your failures, everything that you've ever done wrong is going to be on view for everybody to go, shame on you. No. That's not the life of a believer, okay? We will face judgment. The Bible calls it the Bema Seat Judgment of God. And in the Bema Seat Judgment of God, folks, you will be judged based on one thing and one thing alone, how much you let the Holy Spirit work through your life for the good of the gospel of God, okay? It is always good news. Why? God's not going to put your sins on display because he's already removed them as far as the east is from the west, right? There isn't anything to be seen anymore. God has put them in a place where they cannot be revealed because the blood of Christ has washed them clean. So there is no judgment. There is no wrath against believers. Yeah. Amen. <laughs> Hallelujah. Amen. Because I really don't want all my stuff shown. I'm not hanging my dirty laundry out there if I can avoid it, right? Listen. We are judged on the basis of the blood of Jesus, not on our own merit. So what's this wrath thing then all about? Well, it seems we get a little hung up on this thing called the wrath of God. Many theologians paint an angry picture of God as he exercises vengeance and punishment on a lost world. Can a case be made in Scripture for such a God? Yeah, it can, okay. But then you can make a case for lots of things that aren't really true if you select some scriptures and ignore others. Consider the fact that Jesus declared in Luke 14 that if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, his wife and children, his brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. By this passage, you should be able to hate almost anyone, right? But then again, didn't Jesus also say in Luke 6, I tell you, you who hear me, Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. Okay, so we're supposed to hate mom and dad, but love our enemies. Are you confused yet? That's why we need to come at Scripture armed with an understanding of the nature of who God is so that when we read passages like that, we can fully understand what is being said because God's character is defined by Scripture in three basic concepts that we cannot let go of when we read the Scriptures. If we do, we will misinterpret what is being said. I'll guarantee it. it happens all the time. Those three basic attributes that we have to hold on to all of the time are holiness, love, and goodness. I have a lot of theology books. All of them agree, okay? These are the primary attributes of God. Holiness, love, and goodness. Holiness is the expression of all that is right, all that is pure. Love is the attribute through which God shares himself with us, 
his creation. And goodness is the embodiment of all ideal qualities and rewarding that goes on according to the law of God. In other words, God has a law by which he re rewards his creation, okay? And that law expresses itself in his goodness towards us. Now, obviously, there's nothing negative in those attributes. All of those attributes, holiness, love, goodness, are positive things. So where do we get this idea of a, a wrathful, vengeful, angry God? Well, it's as complicated as it is simple, actually. That is to say that it can be explained simply, but if you're truly going to understand it, you're going to have to think deeply upon it. The idea of a wrathful God comes from actually the first of these three attributes that are very positive. It comes from the attribute of holiness. Because God is so absolutely, perfectly holy, he has to deal with that which is not holy, that which is impure, that which is sinful. He can't just left, leave that go. It has to be dealt with because otherwise there would be no way to approach a holy God. Uh, Nahum uh, 1.3 says, the Lord is slow to anger and great in power. The Lord will not leave the guilty unpunished. In other words, the, the Lord will deal with sin. He has to. In order to reconcile us to himself, he has to. It's part of his holiness. This fact doesn't make God wrathful or judgmental. It doesn't even make him angry in his own right. He is holy. Sin is unholy and must therefore be dealt with and must be dealt with in a way that is true to God's character of being not just holy, but also loving and good. God will not step outside of his character, folks. He won't do that. He can't do that. And that's where the cross of Christ comes into play for us. To satisfy the holiness of God, God invoked his goodness and his love by sending Jesus to a cross for our sin so that it could be forgiven, so that it could be taken care of, so it could actually be removed as far as the east is from the west. Now, I know that's all basic theology, so most of you are just sitting there going, yeah, 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 I heard that before, okay? But I needed to put that on the table, and I needed to do that because it... It helps make sense of the rest of this passage, the rest of this verse in particular. Verse 18, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. What is Paul really talking about here? The wrath of God, the displeasure of God, the anger of God is being put on display against godless Wicked men who try to hide the true nature of God. What's the true nature of God? Holiness, love, and goodness, right? There, you know, there's a reason we say God is good all the time and all the time God is good. It's a basic part of who he is. It's one of those things. Now, we don't say that about the other ones because I never really thought to say it about the other ones. Maybe we should make up something that goes along with those too. But the idea here is this is the basic character of God his attributes, and God is going to put that stuff on display, okay? He wants to make sure that we know this. Now, he's not happy with people who distort that. He's not happy with people 
who come against that and try to, to say that he's something other than he is. That's what Paul is trying to say here. God is not happy with those who would cover up or distort in any way, shape, or form his true nature, that he is holy, that it is loving, that he is good. Look, the enemy doesn't want you to know that God is good. Doesn't want anybody to know that. Ever since the Garden of Eden, Satan's been trying to get mankind to believe that God is not quite as good as God says he is. That was his trick with Adam and Eve. God didn't say that if you eat from that tree, bad things are going to happen. If you eat from that tree, you're going to be like God. You see what's going on in that little lie? God isn't quite as good as, as, as you think he is. He's withholding this from you. He's not letting you be like him. When in truth, he was protecting us. Basically, Paul is saying that God is not happy with those who mislead his people concerning the true nature of his character. So, what do you think a God who is holy, loving, and good would do in his displeasure over the slander of his good name. Remember, God's not going to step outside of his character, right? If he were like us, he'd squash those deceivers like little bugs. That's what I'd want to do. It's a good thing he's not like us. He is holy. He is loving. He is good. And he stays true to his own character by dealing with their sin through Jesus. If they repent, then they get to enjoy his love and goodness. If they don't, God does not condemn them. They condemn themselves. Understand that? Now, he's not happy with what they're doing, okay? That's what wrath means. It means that God's upset. He's angry. He's ticked off, okay? Because they're keeping people from his true character. But he also will not work outside of his own character, in dealing with them. So instead of squashing them like little bugs, he allows his son to be crushed in their stead. That's how a loving God works. C.S. Lewis said, there are only two kinds of people in the end, those who say to God, thy will be done, and those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. All that are in hell, choose it. Without that self-choice, there could be no hell. No soul that seriously and constantly desires joy will ever miss it. Those who seek, find. Those who knock, to them it is opened. J. Vernon McGee, and he's not a relative of me, okay? Not that I'm aware of anyway. I was adopted to the McGee name when I was 11 years old, so I don't even know my relatives for the most part. But J. Vernon McGee, who was a radio preacher for, I don't know, 30, 40 years, um, Back to the Bible was his radio program. He said this, don't say that a loving God is going to send you to hell. He's not. The thing that's going to send you to hell is that you're a sinner and you don't want to admit it. Now, I realize that there are those in Christianity today who do not believe in hell or eternal punishment because we serve a God of love. That hell and punishment are Old Testament concepts and that they were done away with in the New Testament. Listen, folks, hell is real. And punishment is eternal. 
That is clearly taught in both the New and the Old Testament. God does not change, and his truth doesn't change either. What changed between the Old and the New Testament, folks, is Jesus. That's what changed. We're going to get into some more of that, by the way, in the Old New Testament thing in Romans chapter 3. So that's coming up, okay? And how God dealt with sin because of that. Hell didn't change, and it's, it's still an option for people today. But the good news is that people have an option. They can opt out of hell. We can choose hell or we can choose Jesus. That's basically what it boils down to. It's that simple. What did a good God do about those who slandered his good name? He put his name on display in his son. In Jesus, the Father's holiness is maintained. His love is demonstrated and his goodness is applied to us. To those who said God didn't exist, he gave us all of creation, even ourselves, as proof of a designer. Hence the rest of verse 18 there, okay? Being made plain to them by what was created. To those who said God created but doesn't get involved anymore, he sent Jesus to take care of our sin. To those who said that God created but he doesn't care anymore, he put Jesus on a cross, love's perfect gift. To those who said that God saved us, but we're on our own until heaven comes. He gave us his Holy Spirit to comfort, to guide, to teach, to walk with us. To those who said that God created, saved, and walks with us, but don't expect anything good to happen, which is like saying that God is holy, loving, and sometimes good, but not always. He gave those people thousands of promises, blessings, and more, and then invited them to come and taste and see that the Lord is good. God is holy, loving, and kind. And folks, get this, understand this. Those are the attributes of God. Nowhere, nowhere in Scripture is there an attribute for God that says that He is angry, vengeful, judgmental. Those are not attributes of God. Even God's idea of justice for us was Jesus on a cross. That's God's justice. You want justice from somebody who hurts you? Pray that they get everything that Jesus died for. That's God's idea of justice. That's what God is trying to communicate through Paul here. God is not pleased with those who distort his good name. He goes on to talk about this, this great exchange that has been made by those who would rather worship the creation than the creator. A whole lot of, of things went into that opening part there really to get us to this point. Verse 20, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that men are without excuse. There is something, folks, inside of every human being that if it's considered with honesty and depth, must conclude that God exists. All of creation screams about the existence of God. 
Psalm 19 says, the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they display knowledge. There is no speech or language where their voice is not heard. Their voice goes out into all the earth. Their words to the ends of the world. Consider this. Just to breathe in and to breathe out like you're doing right now and you're not thinking about, okay? Your body does that. It's an auto-response of your body, okay? Keeps your heart pumping, getting that oxygen in there, right? You do it automatically. You rarely think about it unless somebody knocks the breath out of you or you've gone running or something like that. But just to know this, you breathe in, you breathe out, that oxygen is in the atmosphere for your lungs so that you can have life. Just to know that, just to consider that. What all went into that? You have to admit that there is a designer. Just that. That doesn't even get into the intricacies of what the Bible talks about, that you are fearfully and wonderfully made. I mean, just your eye, the the ability to perceive sight is such an incredible thing. And what had to go into you, the design of you, in order for you to be able to see, or any other created being to be able to see. Now, that's not to say that everybody sees. Obviously, there are blind people Blind animals on the, on the planet, right? That's because we live in a fallen world and things have been broken, folks, and they will continue to be broken until this planet is remade. But it doesn't change the fact that God designed something incredible in you. And there's no way that evolution can account for any of that. It doesn't matter how far out you extend your mathematics, evolution will never get there. It can't. God has proven beyond a shadow of a doubt that he exists simply by what he's created. That's what this passage is talking about. To ignore that and a million other simple proofs that God is real is to chuck your brains in the waste can of human folly. That's what it boils down to. Psalm 14.1 says, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. When we go there, we have stepped into the great exchange of a truth for a lie. From there, it's all a downhill slide. So you say, Scott, I believe in God. I've made the great exchange of my sin for his righteousness. I'm good. Yes, you are. Ultimately, you are good. But there's a difference between good and great, isn't there? There really is. And it lies in our everyday choices. And that's where I see this passage really applying to those who are believers. It lies in our choices. Remember, Paul is talking to believers. He's writing to believers. So why would he be writing about non-believers? He's writing to them because there's a purpose in this for them to understand as well. You see, even though we've been made, remade in Christ, we have this ultimate great exchange of our sin for his sinlessness, we still make daily exchanges that keep us from a great life that should come with the great exchange. What do I mean by that? As a believer, when I exchange God's peace in my life for worry, then I've stepped into this other exchange. In some way, I've exchanged the power of God to keep me for the power of the enemy to hurt me. Get that? The result is worry. How many worried this week? Oh, okay. So... God is really talking to you about this great exchange, isn't he? 
We may have done the great exchange, but we're often led astray by the enemy, okay? Convinced by the enemy, God's not quite as good as, as you think he is. And then we begin to worry, we begin to fear because we missed the fact that all of that was exchanged in the great exchange. It was supposed to be taken away in the great exchange. But we kind of went back to it and we decided we'd grab onto that lie of the enemy rather than the truth of what? The character of God, that he is holy, that he is loving, and that he is good. You see, you can't go there. You can't exchange. The power of God for worry and fear without ignoring a holy, loving, and good God. As a believer, I should be able to live without fear, right? But every time I give way in my life to the opinions of others, I exchange my identity in Christ as more than a conqueror for a form of slavery, which is called popular opinion, right? So, I'm not happy if I don't fit in. Why? Because popular opinion demands that I fit in. And so what do I do? I try to think like, act like, behave like, dress like, look like other people rather than who God just simply created me to be. Is there anything wrong with fashion? No, I'm not talking about that, okay? I'm talking about trying to fit in, trying to be like. Too much of, of the world gets into the play, and we, we end up walking this tightrope, this fence between what the world looks like and what Christianity looks like. And what happens when we do that is we lose sight of this holy, loving, good God who has better things planned for us than the world will ever be able to give us. But we latch on to the things of the world. As a believer, I should live in joy. So when anger takes a hold of my thinking, what has happened? If I should live in joy and, and I get angry, what, what, what just happened to me? I've exchanged God's joy, right? I've exchanged everything that comes with that joy, the peace and the rest and everything that comes for the need to maybe punish somebody else because they hurt me or what they might do to me. See, that's what I do every time I get angry at another driver, <laughs> even if they didn't, didn't hit me. Now, last night, somebody did hit me. <laughs> I don't know why this is happening all of a sudden. Back in, in August, we had our car totaled by somebody who hit me from behind. Yesterday, I was sitting at a stop sign, and somebody just casually kind of bumped into me on my motorcycle. Boom, kind of thing. Didn't, no, no harm done to me, kind of thing. But it cracked the fender of the motorcycle. So it's just one of those things, you know. I didn't get angry, by the way. <laughs> but when I get angry at somebody that does something strange on the road, okay, what did I just do? I just bought into a lie of the enemy that says, you know what, I need to express my displeasure at you, okay, for what you did. So I honk my horn or I say some choice words or whatever kind of thing. I lose my cool, whatever kind of thing because I need to make sure that they're punished for what they did wrong because they could have hurt me. I just lost my joy. That's an exchange that is really easy to make, isn't it? And you do it day in and day out, don't you? Every time you get angry, every time you get frustrated, every time you get upset at somebody else, that's what we just did. We just lost our joy. 
these other exchanges, I exchange my commitment to God or to the people of God in a lot of different ways. Some, sometimes, and, and this happens probably more than it should. And I want to make sure you, know, you really understand what I'm saying here. We'll exchange our commitment to God and our commitment to the people of God when we choose to do things or pursue things that take us out of the fellowship of the body of Christ. Please understand, I'm not talking about emergency issues at work or rare schedule conflicts at work. I'm talking about the things that are up for your decision. It's, it's up to you to decide whether or not you come or not. What Stacy was talking about this morning, not getting out of bed, deciding to watch TV or church on TV, you know, that kind of thing. That's what I'm talking about. Janet and I had a pastor, a man by the name of Don Hinkle when we were younger. When he was a youth pastor, uh, kids of the youth group would take jobs that would keep them from church or youth group. And he would pray, literally pray, that they would lose their jobs, and inevitably they would. He didn't, he didn't do that to be mean, okay? He didn't do that to make life harder on them. He did it because he believed that they needed to be plugged into God first and foremost. To exchange that relationship for a job, for income, would lead down a path of disconnection that they couldn't afford to travel. And folks, that's what we do. People who disconnect themselves from the body of Christ begin a slippery slope down into a place that's really hard to recover from. You've seen it. I've seen it as a pastor more than I'd, I'd ever want to see it, to be sure how people disconnect slowly but surely. Oh, they miss a Sunday here, they miss a Sunday there. Pretty soon they're missing two in a row and then three and then they're gone for a month and a half. You know, and pretty soon there is no connection with the body of Christ. And folks, you can, you can believe this if you want to, all you want, but to not have a connection with the body of Christ is to not have a connection with Christ. It's that simple. You're not gonna really connect to this bodiless head. There's more to Christ than just his headship. You need to be connected to the body of Christ as well. And that's one another. If you don't, then you lose. The exchange you make puts you in a deficit. My point is simple. There are a lot of exchanges that we make that place something or someone else on the throne of our hearts who isn't God. Verse 21 of our passage, for although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but in their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. This is the slow, slippery slide into darkness, okay? Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of God for images made to look like mortal man, birds, animals, reptiles. Folks, Mankind was made to worship. And if we don't worship God, we will worship all manner of things. We'll worship money. We'll worship our pets. We'll worship some monk on a mountaintop somewhere in Asia. We were made to worship. It's what we choose to worship that makes the difference. Now, that might seem strange and foolish to us to you know, worship your pets, worship money, Worship the Dalai Lama or somebody like that. 
we often substitute things in smaller ways that have the same effect on us, things that have no business being on the throne of our heart, things that are not God. There's this sort of slow demise that happens when we place someone or something where God belongs. A story is told of a foolish old farmer who concluded one day that the oats that he had fed to his mule for years were simply costing him too much money. So he hatched a plan. He mixed a little sawdust into the feed, and then a little more the next day and even more the next day, each time reducing the amount of oats in the mix. The mule didn't seem to notice the gradual change, so the farmer thought things were fine and kept decreasing the proportion of oats. But weeks later, on the day he finally fed the poor beast nothing but sawdust, the mule finished the meal and then fell over dead. The point is this. Nothing can substitute our relationship with Jesus. We must set ourselves on guard lest we misplace him in our lives and drift away. The exchange is ever so subtle, hardly even noticeable, until our spiritual life collapses in on us. I think that's what Eugene Peterson is trying to express when he paraphrased this particular passage in the Message Bible. I told you I was going to read you two different translations. This is the second translation, and I think he does a wonderful job with it. Listen to the same passage of Romans 1, 18 through 25 out of the Message Bible. It says, but, God, but God's angry displeasure erupts as acts of human mistrust and wrongdoing and lying accumulate as people try to put a shroud over truth but the basic reality of God is plain enough. Open your eyes, and there it is. By taking a long and thoughtful look at what God has created, people have always been able to see what their eyes as, as, much, as such can't see. Eternal power, for instance, and the mystery of his divine being. So nobody really has a good excuse. What happened was this. People knew God perfectly well, but... When they didn't treat him like God, refusing to worship, they trivialized themselves into silliness and confusion so that there was neither sense nor direction left in their lives. You get the sense of that downhill slide? They pretended to know it all, but were illiterate regarding life. They traded the glory of God who holds the whole world in his hands for cheap figurines that you can buy at a roadside stand. And I love this next part, the last part. He says, so God in effect said, if that's what you want, that's what you get. It wasn't long before they were living in a pig pen, smeared with filth, filthy inside and out, and all this because they traded the true God for a fake God and worshiped the God they made instead of the God who made them. The God that we bless. The God who blesses us. Amen. That last part there, that is about our choices, isn't it? The great exchange of our sin for Jesus' righteousness was God's choice for us. We can accept, we can reject, doesn't matter. It came from God. This other great exchange, that wasn't God's idea. That one came from us. That one came in the beginning when mankind listened to the serpent in the garden and made a choice to rebel against God. And it's been going on ever since. That one continues today as people continue to reject Jesus in their lives. It continues today even in God's people when we place anything on the throne of our lives that isn't God. The result is always the same when we do that. We end up a mess. I love the way he puts it here. 
we end up smeared with filth, filthy inside and out. The good news is that we have a choice. The good news is that we don't have to live in a pig pen that we've created. And this is just a suggestion, something to think about. When you find yourself unhappy, angry, worried, disillusioned, depressed, fearful, ask the Holy Spirit what or who is on the throne of your heart at that moment. I'll guarantee you it's not God. And when you find out, when the Holy Spirit tells you, when He reveals to you what you've placed on that throne, make sure that you get it kicked off and put God back there because it will change everything. Everything. You have to be careful of whose voice you're listening to, whose direction you're traveling. When you find anything or anyone, including yourself, on the throne of your heart, of your life, it's time for a revolution. It's time for a coup that puts God back where he belongs in your life. That is the gist of what Paul is talking about in this passage. And it comes down to this. And I know I've said this a lot, but it really is true. You get the life you choose. You can choose to put God there and live in joy and peace and freedom and love and hope and rest. Or you can put something or someone, even yourself, on that throne and you will miss the abundance that Jesus promised you. I guarantee it. That will happen. It's our choice. You get the life that you choose. You can choose rebellion. You can choose just a wayward direction. Either way, you'll end up someplace you didn't want to go. And you'll have to deal with it when you get there. I love the story of Daniel and King Nebuchadnezzar. King Nebuchadnezzar was a prideful man, an incredibly prideful man, so much so that he built a statue that was incredible, 90 feet tall, nine feet wide, this narrow little thing sticking up. Everybody had to bow down and worship because the statue was an image of him. It was rather distorted when you think about it, but it was a very skinny Nebuchadnezzar. That's how self-involved he was. That's how narcissistic. Do you think narcissism came in, in our day and age? No, no, it existed long, long ago. Back in the Old Testament, that was his life. You know what happened to Nebuchadnezzar? Eventually, because of his pride, because of his self-involvement, he ended up out in the fields eating grass with the cows. Out of his mind. Because that's where that'll take you. Putting anything, including yourself, on the throne of your heart, other than God, is going to take you out in the field with the donkeys and the sheep into a place you don't want to go. And I love the picture that the Bible paints at that point of Nebuchadnezzar's heart and mind. It says he looked up into heaven and he came to his senses. And it's really interesting because he gets restored when he finally says, I give up, God, you get my heart. I give up, I worship you. God puts him back in his right mind and restores him to his kingship. And that's what he does for us. When you get to that place where you figure out 
what it is that you put on your heart, it's thrown because you're not happy, you're angry, you're fearful, whatever, okay? God will have you look up, put him back on the throne, and then he will restore you. That's good news. That's really good news. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I just want to thank you. You are a God of good news. That's what this whole book is about, a God of good news. And you are holy, and you are loving, and you are always good. And you express that goodness to us by inviting us back into your joy and your peace and your rest and your love and, and all those things that you desire for us that make up this abundant life that Jesus promised. And all we have to do is look up and come to our senses at any given moment, any time that we find ourselves in a place we don't want to be. We simply need to look up and come to our senses to make the choice to put you back on the throne of our lives. What an invitation. What an incredible invitation that you give us. Father, I pray that as a people, every time we find ourselves in that place this week, we will look up. Every time we find ourselves someplace we don't really want to be, experiencing something we don't really want to experience, we will look up because you are true and you are faithful and you will be there for us. Thank you for your goodness. In Jesus' name. All God's people said, amen. amen.